Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14. At the banquet, when we were at the banquet, uh, there was two ladies. How many sisters does or brothers does Maddie have? Thirteen or sixteen? Thirteen. There's fourteen kids, and so her and her sister got up and sang a cappella, a song, and they called a church here in the church that follows us on Sunday morning. And so I told them, I said, one Sunday, you two are coming in and doing that song for us. Um, and they agreed to it. But usually, telling Maddie anything isn't a good idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but Colossians 1, 9 through 14, go ahead and read that. That's your tables, it's in the sermon notes, it's on your phone, it's in the Bible. I mentioned last week that every relationship as good as its communication and how important that is in our relationship with Christ. That our communication with Christ will help us in our growth in our relationship with Christ. Um, and Dwight L. Moody once commented that he would rather learn to pray than preach. Because after all, he said, Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach. He taught them how to pray. And that prayer is so important that every revival that has ever been, a true revival, has started with prayer. And so Jesus taught his disciples how to pray because it is the mo was the most important aspect of their lives. And the rest of our relationships and every other area of our life revolves around our spiritual health. If we are believers, every aspect of our life revolves around our spiritual health. Yet so many people lose sight of the fact that that is true. And so they continue to try to live their lives without prayer, live their lives ignoring their spiritual health, thinking that things will just work out. And folks, they don't usually work out for the best. And so it's prayer. So Paul's prayer in Colossians is another lesson on how to pray. But Colossians' prayer is a lot different than how we pray. Uh, first of all, Colossians is a positive letter. He starts out the letter giving all these positive affirmations to the people. And he cuts, states a couple of things that set them apart. He says their faith in Christ set them apart from others. Their love for one another set them apart. The word of God and how it penetrated their lives set them apart from one another. And those are the same things that should define the church today. Our love for one another, our relationship with Christ, our love for the word. All of those things should be what the church is about. 
But because of that, he says all these things. Paul goes on, I pray for you daily. And when you think about that, it really is contrary to the way we pray. We usually pray about troubles, burdens. There's something wrong, so we pray about it. Somebody's going through a crisis, we pray about it. Somebody's going through an illness, we pray about it. Somebody's going through a divorce, we pray about it. Somebody's kid has gone to jail, we pray about it. We pray about the troubles. Here, Paul is doing the opposite. You know, you guys are doing great. You've got a hunger for God. You've got a hunger for his word. You're showing love for one another. And because of that, I'm praying for you. And that should just be insightful for us. He, he's giving them preventative medicine. So don't just come to me when you're sick. Here's something that you can do that will help you from even getting sick. Or when you get sick, the healing will be much easier and quicker. Um, so Paul begins this. saying, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul begins by speaking of being filled with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What a great prayer to pray for yourself, but what a great prayer to pray for each other. It is the prayer that I have put on my Echo app to pray for all the guys in our group. This comes right out of here. It lays a foundation of purpose and power for the life of every person. No longer are we to rely on our own wisdom. No longer are we to rely on our own understanding and our own knowledge. But we have a new source of understanding, a source that comes from Christ, a source that comes from his word, a source that is through the Holy Spirit. And we can distinguish, we can begin to distinguish his voice from our own voice. And I think that's a real difficult thing to do in our lives. We hear something and immediately we say, oh, that's from God. And it may be so far away from God that we have no clue. But when we truly pray for spiritual wisdom and knowledge, then we'd be able to distinguish a little bit better between God's voice and our own desires, or God's voice and our voice. And the word behind the verb to be filled is a word which means to make full, being to completion, or to proclaim fully. So the idea that Paul wants us to convey is that the knowledge he wants us to have in Christ is complete. It's full. It's, you don't need more than that. His spiritual wisdom, his understanding, his knowledge. And that this comes from the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verses 10 through 14, it says, But it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit. For by his Spirit, for his Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given to us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the spirit, using the spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths about God's spirit. 
It all sounds foolish to them, and they, they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. We will spend a lot of time arguing with people who will never understand. Versus praying for people that God penetrates a heart that they can't understand. Because until the Spirit penetrates their heart, they're just going to continue to misunderstand anything that is God's truth. Spiritual wisdom and understanding helps us to live beyond our own understanding and our own personal perception of reality. It gets us off of ourselves and back onto God. It's praying for a desire for deeper things and more important meaning in life. And as Paul speaks of this type of knowledge, he is expecting that it will strike at the center of the believer's life. Because, uh, because for the Colossians, they, they weren't much different than us in the, their society. They had all kinds of gods. They had all kinds of things that were distracting them. And for many of them, Jesus just became an add-on. Okay, well, I can do Jesus also. And I think that's what's happened in the church today and in the country today, is that we just add Jesus to one of many things, and he's just one of our list of events that we take care of, but he's not first priority. He's not first priority. Two weeks ago, Robert Morris on the video was talking about Jesus will never settle for second place. And as long as we put him as just one of the priorities instead of first priority, the center of our life, we're not going to have praying with purpose and with power. Because Jesus is not going to settle for being just an add-on. So Paul is writing to them that Jesus is to be the center of their life. And so as we pray for one another, we need to pray and challenge one another to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Not grow in just anything, but really, that should be our first and primary prayer. So that when a person comes across a decision that they're not sure about, they've already been prayed for to receive the knowledge of Christ that they can now make a decision that is centered upon Christ. And so there's not those crisis prayers that say, oh, I've got to make this decision. We've already been prayed through a lot of that. And the reason for this is found in verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. See, when we are filled with the knowledge of God, we will live a life worthy of the Lord. And a life worthy of the Lord in the Greek really means be productive, bearing fruit. That when a life is worthy of the Lord, we're living out the fruit of the Spirit that's on the wall. We're living out, we're, we're living out the Great Commission. What I found interesting, Barna just did another research, said 50% of people who go to church have no idea what the Great Commission is. They don't know what the Great Commandment is. So we can talk about making disciples. We can talk about the Great Commission. But if people don't even know what the Great Commission is about going forth to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Christ, and then loving one another as Christ loved us, it's, it's just empty words. And so, you know, he's saying, we need to get this. 
We no longer live to please ourselves. We now live to please God. And the knowledge of God begins to have an impact on our actions. When a person's life has been changed by God, it begins to impact their actions. And it may not be outward as much as it just is inward. That the way they live their life, the way they pray. Um, can I use you as an example? I said to Chris today, I go, you look really good today. You look really nice. And she goes, are you practicing I'm third? And I go, no. When we went on our motorcycle trip, it was the I'm third tour. That God's first, other second, me third. And she goes, well, ever since Norm's come back, he's been practicing this I'm third thing. Um, which is a good thing, but now she's accusing me of not just saying, hey, you look nice. <laughs> um, but that's really what it's about. About putting ourselves in that place. And so in Galatians, Paul gives a contrast of what a worthy life in the Lord looks like compared to an unworthy life. And this is from the New Living Translation. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, your lives will produce these, produce these evil results. Sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your own little group, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other kinds of sins. Let me tell you again, as I have said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce these kind of, this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here, there is no conflict with the law. See, the person who is living to please God will begin to see a change in their values. They'll be challenged. They'll go, is this really what, what God would do? Is this really what, what is the loving thing to do? And you begin to just see a change in behavior. So how do we know if we're living the life pleasing to our Lord? It's not how we behave when we are here. It's how we behave when we're out of here. See, the life that pleases God is one that glorifies God in our daily life. And how we do our job. And how we interact with one another. How we treat our co-workers. How you treat your husband on the way to St. Louis. The way we handle our mistakes. <laughs> the... the you picked up on that, huh? I think I got that from Charles Barkley. Um, <laughs> the way we handle our mistakes, the way we treat our families. But we can't do this on our own. We really can't do it on our own, folks. There's no way we have the human power to change ourselves. And that is the most frustrating thing about Christianity. Because God says, here's the standard... And we just think that as soon as a person becomes a Christian, they should be living to that standard. And when they're not living to that standard, we just don't understand why they don't, why they don't change. Why they can't get over it. And that's why it says we pray to be strengthened. We pray to be strengthened. Be in strength with all power according to his glorious might. 
not our glorious might, his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. This is not a command to be strengthened. It's not going out there and say, join the gym. We have a spiritual gym you can go to to strengthen up your spiritual. This is what God is doing in our lives. It's a passive present participle, which I have no idea what that means. But it's the type of language that says, allow this to come upon you. This is just going to happen as you pray for it, that God will give you that strength. You receive strength not from your own ability, but from his spirit. God is the source of our strength, not you, not me. So here, Scripture is charging you to gain your strength from God, not from yourself. And think about all the times that we have looked at somebody else and questioned why they haven't been able to get it instead of just saying, you know what? We need to pray for strength for them. Because unless God's empowering them, unless God's strengthening them, unless God's there, they're not going to come over those addictions. They're not going to get over that problem. They're not going to be able to do this on their own. They're not going to be able to win that battle. That is only going to come when God gives them the ability and the strength to do it. And out of that, Paul prays that the Spirit of God would also produce patience and endurance in our lives. My wife is very fond of saying, never pray for patience because God will give you opportunities to practice it. Um, but when you read Scripture, you can't help but notice that God places a great deal of value on endurance. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, I have, no, in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, this perseverance that took place. Endurance, patience, and joy are always found together in the scripture. Consider it pure joy, my, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, James 1, 2, and 4. So the testing of our faith produces a depth in our relationship, our relationship with God and in our understanding of how God works. And then, then it says, gratefully we can pray or we can live joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in to the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 12-14. I would encourage you just to put that verse somewhere. And when you pray for friends, when you pray for family, when you don't know how to pray for somebody, you just make that your prayer. And that is just, there's no better prayer to pray for somebody than that. Um, that we could have that sense, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you realize how powerful that is? That we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness? That should be such a sense of just leading us into 
praises and worship. Have you ever noticed how we complain, though? I, it's just, I think it's just second nature or first nature that God has to redeem. We complain about the weather. Okay? When we should be grateful that we're alive. You know? We complain about our taxes, especially in the state of Illinois, which gives us plenty of reason to complain, instead of being grateful that we have an income. We complain about how our food is cooked or how long the waitress takes when we should be grateful that we have food. We complain about other believers who aren't as spiritual as we. We're the only ones that are doing it right when we should be thanking God that all members do not have the same gift and that all churches do not function the same because each church, each person uses their gift to impact someone else. We complain about traffic when we should be glad that we can travel with such ease. We complain about crowds in the store when we should be glad that we're able to shop. Or we complain that Amazon Prime can't get it to us in an hour <laughs> instead of a day. I mean, folks, it's, it's just so interesting that we're saying we need to be thankful but so many times the first thing that comes out of our mind, our mouths, is a complaint about something. So you get the idea. We thank God for what he's given while at the same time feeling like he should have given us more. I'm, I'm really glad you gave me this, God, but couldn't you have made it a little bit easier for me? Couldn't you have given me a little bit more? Couldn't you have done this? We seem to think that if God really loved us, we would have less problems, more money, more stuff, more influence, less illness, more good times, less difficult times. That's sort of how we live our life. But then we tell God we're grateful. If you were God, would you believe us? God, I am so grateful for this. <laughs> you know, if you're talking to your wife and you're telling her how grateful you are, and then you say, but, or you're talking to your husband and you say how grateful you are, and then you say, but, or you're talking to your employer and you say how grateful you are, but then you say, but, why would they believe you? So if we're really going to have a grateful heart, what are we really being grateful for? Is it because life is a little bit easier here? Or because we have been set free. We have been delivered from darkness. We have the opportunity to live redeemed lives. We have been forgiven of our sins. We've been able to experience his grace, his love. We've been able to experience a community of people who have the ability to care for one another in ways that society just doesn't get. But it's up to us. And this is why Paul prays this prayer for his people. Gratitude begins when we realize we do not deserve the inheritance that has been reserved for us. Verse 13 begins with, he has delivered us. Some versions use rescue us. I don't know, who's got deliver us in their version? Who's got rescue us? Yeah. I like, I like the word rescue better 
because Amazon delivers packages. Um, you deliver groceries, you deliver the newspaper. You know, I used to have a newspaper. I delivered newspapers. But rescue has a whole different connotation. Rescue means there was some danger that I was involved in, and now I have been rescued from it. Um, either word is okay. I just like the power of rescue. Um, you have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been rescued. We now have forgiveness. We have redemption. The concept of redemption is found in the idea of being set free from debt and bondage, from death. We have been set free. And the primary definition of the word is, in fact, setting free. The verse makes clear that the redemption causes the forgiveness of sins. One of my favorite all-time movies, of two of them, uh, Les Mis, and Jay and I were talking about the movie this week, um, where it's based on the novel by Victor Hugo, and I know most of you have probably heard the story, um, but it opens with a recently released prisoner curled up on a stone bench on a desolate French street corner. And because of the way he looks, people are ignoring him and just walking by him because they think that he's dangerous. Um, and it causes the town people from whom he's just trying to get some food, which is the reason why he was in jail in the first place, to just help him find some place. Finally, he slumps over in dejection until a passerby points to a place where he can find refuge. He goes to the door and knocks, and the homeowner is the town's bishop. It is startled by the late night visitation, but attentively listens to the story. His name is Jean Valjean, and he reveals that he has recently released convict, and then he is marked by the authorities as dangerous, and he has to go and get his papers. But even so, the bishop welcomes him into the house, feeds him, but later in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean sees all the silver that's in the place, and he steals it and goes, runs, you know, runs away. Later in the morning, the police bring him back to the bishop's house with all of the silver. And, you know, and then says, Jean Valjean said that, you know, he knew you and that you gave them to him. And when they meet face to face, Valjean strikes the bishop, leaving him, un oh, this is when he stole it. Um, moments later, the authorities appear. I got ahead of the story. I'm sorry, folks. Looking deeply into the thief's eyes, the bishop says, I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. Turning to the authorities, he asks, didn't he tell you he was our guest? Oh, yes, replies the chief authority. After we searched his knapsack and found all the silver, he claimed that you gave it to him. Stooping in shame, Valjean expects the bishop to indict him. A new prison sentence awaits him. But the bishop says, yes, of course I gave him the silverware. Then looking intently at Valjean, he asks, but why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Did you forget to take them? The bishop orders his domestic servant to hurry and fetch the candlesticks. While the authorities stand dumbfounded, they ask, are you saying that he told the truth? The bishop replies, of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. 
The authorities immediately released Valjean, who was shocked by the turn of events, and the bishop thrust the retrieved candlesticks into Valjean's knapsack. Once the authorities leave, the bishop drops the heavy bake of silver at Valjean's feet. After peeling away Valjean's hood, which was cloaking his guilty face, the bishop sternly looks him in the eyes and orders Valjean, don't forget, don't ever forget, you've promised to become a new man. Valjean, trembling, makes the promise and with utter humility asks, why are you doing this? The, the bishop places his hands on Valjean's shoulders as an act of blessing and declares, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've brought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. Now I give you back to God. That's what Jesus did for each one of us. Throughout the movie, you just see how he became a new man and how he never let go of those two candlesticks that constantly reminded him of the grace that the bishop gave him. What do we hold on that constantly reminds us of the grace that Jesus Christ gave us? The grace of his forgiveness, the grace that he said, wherever you've been, I can put you on a new place. Wherever you've been, you're forgiven. That if you're walking that way away from Christ, all you have to do is stop and turn around and he's right there with you. What do we need to remind ourselves on a daily basis that that's what Christ did for us and that we have that same sense of gratitude that says, I care enough to care enough for other people. That what God did for me changed me so that I too can care for others. Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae was that they would pray for one another in a new way. Not for resolution to their problems, but to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. To walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, pleasing him in all ways and bearing fruit. Being productive, contributing to the well-being of others. All the while increasing in knowledge of God. Praying for the strength with his power to remain steadfast. And always, always giving thanks for all that he has done. When we do that, we will be praying with power and purpose. And people will begin to see a difference in us. And they'll, they'll see a difference of what it looks like to have a life that is pleasing to the Lord. The challenge all starts with a simple act of praying. Being a people of prayer. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity that you give us to come together, to be challenged by your word, to be moved by your spirit, to be filled with your spirit, to experience your grace, your love, your power. And Father, we ask that you continue to minister to us now as we come to take communion and help that always be a reminder to us of the redemptive work that you did in our lives. And so, Father, let us continue to celebrate with joy what you've done, and may you continue to minister to each one of us as we go forth to minister one to another. It's our prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.